Data-Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data-Driven Podcast where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing data skills, the Data Driven Podcast is here to guide you on your journey. I'm your host and the co-founder of Story IQ, Dominic Bohan. Today, we're going to hear about effective strategies for personal and professional growth, insights from Disney and data-driven HR. Joining us is Adam Hickman, Vice President of Organizational Development at Partners Federal Credit Union, a Disney company, which empowers Disney-affiliated members with financial solutions and guidance. Today, Adam and I are going to discuss learning and development tips from Disney. Okay, here's my conversation with Adam Hickman, Vice President of Organizational Development at Partners Federal Credit Union, a Disney company. Okay, thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Adam. Can you tell us a bit about your role as Vice President at Org Development? at this Disney company and how it ties into learning and development strategies. Yes. First, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate the time to come and talk about one of the most passionate topics. And I love the data-driven piece because we often say that in our role of what we do. So the space that I serve is related to org and cast development. And often people push those two together, but to separate them is the right tact on org development is around things that move teams, functions, divisions, whole company, things forward based on the strategy you've got placed. If you think of, you know, I always say, like, picture the name of a company. What if you were to flip it or change the name of it? You've got to get the team together and understanding and know and what's the development look like there. But then there's also individuals in that team, so you've got to focus on that. So we, we do things of that sort in the L&D space and OD space where we're moving teams forward, but we're also helping move people forward along the way. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so Disney's around for its emphasis on exceptional customer experiences. So how does this, what you're doing in the organizational and learning development space contribute to that end user effect and contribute to the impact on the customer? Yeah. So there's, there's a unique way we look at this. And I think as good as our sponsor being Disney does well at telling stories, we follow suit to that. And what we've made a conscious effort to, and this might sound Disney as it's not contradicting to my role, but training's not always the answer. Even though everybody will will defer to like, we got to get better training. Or we got to like, there's no fix them training. So stop trying to fix them. But there is is things that can happen before and post that just make the difference to what it is. So when you think of what are we doing experience wise, well, compare it to Disney. Before you go to a show or the parks or a movie, you probably had things going on before then that already situate you in what you're going to go experience, whether that's, you know, literature that's coming your way, website, apps, you know, all the conversations or the songs that are stuck in your head even before you saw the movie. All of those pieces build the story up to the point of, okay, now I'm there and situated in it. And then when I leave, what's the experience on the way out? If you've been to the park, you'll, you'll know what I mean, that there's a whole experience even leaving the park, the things that are happening. So in our sessions, let's say we have a desire and need for, just going to make up a topic, you know, delegation. We, we got to get better at delegating. Well, do you? Or do you need a way to reframe that as, 
development because if delegation's done right, it's actually development. So talk to me about all the things that are happening pre-delegation. And then what are you doing post-delegation? If that formula is set right, then we know we've had all the conversations and things that can happen before then and after then. And then are you incorporating who the person is by their strengths? Are you clear on their communication style? Do you know where they're at in their development scale? So the actual act of it is usually not the solution. It's all the things that fell apart before and after. So yes, we will. Yes, we will do training. But my question always is when someone requested to say, like, how do you how do you know that's the fix for this? Because it's likely not. It's a supplement to it or an aid to it, but it's it's really not. And, and you know, think of data driven pieces to it. Anytime it's a piece about conversations or the lack thereof, I mean, just all the rigor around the data on who owns the most engagement on the team, up to 70% is the manager's role. It is 100% the manager role. The conversations about knowing what's expected of you at work. When I had time at Gallup, the running number there was, I would believe, three in 10 employees knew what was expected of them coming into work today. So lower number, but I mean, just think about those that are on your team, if you have a group of 10, there's seven people walking around today saying, I don't know what's expected of me. So then they're going to get creative and there goes your loss of productivity and things of that sort. So we're using those pieces to help aid when we get a request to know what's being said. Could you give us an example of one of these situations that comes up where people are convinced, hey, out of my need training, and it's actually not the solution, and then what the alternative solution is? Yeah, yeah. Let me think when we've had recently. We've had a request on... How do you have meaningful conversations with your employees on a day-to-day-out basis? And there's a method that we use on five different types of conversations from role and responsibility to check-ins, to developmental, to mid-years, end-years, things of that sort. So we've kind of named the space of what the conversations are. But I said, I don't think you really need to um, amplify the communications and conversations because they're on your calendar. You're having them, but our course correction is you said you wanted to have meaningful conversations so who are these meaningful to and that was our kickoff to say we haven't defined meaningful and you can't do it without the other person so let's say we're going into a one-on-one conversation what's meaningful to you is not meaningful to me and that's all right but until i know hey if i'm going into conversation with dom what what's meaningful to him part one part two is how do you show up to work and that's from a talent profile of things. So are you one that loves to organize things? Are you one that loves to communicate? Are you one that's more on, let's just get the work done? For instance, I prefer we get into a one-on-one conversation. Let's just get right to it. I'll tell you what I did over the weekend, and I'll tell you about my kids. But we've got a short, finite period of time. Let's just cut right to it. Not everybody's like that. So there lies the difference where we said, I hear you on you want a more structured format to how to have conversations. But we're going to, even before we get into that, I'm going to pause everyone and say, how do you know your employees intrinsically to what motivates them, what inspires them? How do they show up every single day? And how have you adapted to their style, not them adapting to you? So a whole different, whole different way around the barn that we went on that one. But ideally, we landed with more and more of a desire right now for us to get involved with understanding what are people's innate talents. And how do we change that based on that? So it starts more with an assessment of where we're currently at than rushing into building a training program. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, data-driven, right? You got you to gotta have a baseline. Yep. And our baseline is really aimed at subjective data right now rather than objective. Mm-hmm. And 
when we can lead with the objective piece to it, you know, my, my framework on when we get into this is, is what do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? And what do you want them to do? Mm-hmm. If you can hit those pieces and front load it with objective data, it's no longer a suggestion. It's a recommendation based on proof that we can have within the data to say, if not, then this is what could happen, right? Then I'll get into the subjective piece of how we'll change behaviors. Okay, so we've got think, feel, do, if we can get that right, we can achieve great things. Now, what's interesting about the space that you're working in and the space that we work in to some degree is that the data, as you said, is often subjective. The sample size is often small. It's often hard to build a really robust model with this sort of data. We have to make some assumptions. We have to make some judgment calls. How do you approach that in the L&D space? Are there any tips you have for people who might be dealing with smaller, more complex, subjective data sets? Yes, because we deal with it every day. day You know, I think Cotter's change management model got it right when I read something along the line around the tipping point 60%. I mean, the whole thing comes down once you've knocked it down to 60% and then, you know, it follows. When you don't have an enterprise of 100,000 people to to have into a sample size and you got to select few, your consensus that you can derive from the words that are being said will help influence what needs to happen. So what I mean by that is we're going through a process right now of updating our new hire uh, training piece to it. We know from a curriculum design, it needs some tender love and care, but we also know I can't do that without the buy-in from the business because then it was a me effort and not an us effort to that. So the focus groups that we've held will record, take the transcripts, I'll run it through qualitative software and do the analysis on what are the common themes that we're hearing. And those themes are what will circulate and converse with others to say, we know we need this from a curriculum, but we actually went out to the business and We did the the labor of love on asking a bunch of questions to hear your thoughts and opinions. Here's the consensus of what we heard. Do you agree? Now it's no longer me. I had a small sample set to work with, but when it's led with that rather than just, I'm going to make a recommendation based on 20 years of being in this space, it's more of a collective action that we can take based on that. So there's one method of it. But let's say you don't have qualitative software and you just got to go with what you know. Right? Mm. So we're, we're talking bare bones effect of how this happens. Yep. The best predictor of performance in the future is based on the past. Mm-hmm. So where I think there is gold sitting there is what has worked in the past and not, not doing anything with it. Acknowledge it and say, does it fit our culture, core values, and does it fit the workplace today? All of the conversations right now on hybrid, remote, and, and on-site workers the one piece of data that I've seen so far that says this is what is the biggest difference between being hybrid, remote, and on-site is mentorship and coaching. Mentorship, I think, is right. The previous company I was at, Gallup, Jim Clifton, had said, you're missing the stories in the hallway or the points where you can just sit down and swap. Hey, this worked before. Or it's that true mentorship, not a an assignment to be mentored mm. by somebody, but really the hearing the quote-unquote war, war stories of the past how this works to me a mentorship it's it's coaching but it's also you're hearing what did and did not work so use that as part of your sample to say that's an indication of culturally how it worked then and now that's also indication to say well gosh when we position our messaging 
I'm going to start with, hey, we went backwards before we went forwards on this. And let me talk to you about how this worked then. And then let me hear your ideas of where it can go from here. It's the same thing with a lesser amount, but don't minimize the, the, the past of what worked and what didn't work because you'll hear those that have been here forever like, gosh, we tried this already. And you know what? It didn't work. And then, you know, I've been in some seats where I'm like, well, then why didn't anybody tell me? But it was my lesson on why didn't you ask? Now, you mentioned mentorship and in particular, informal mentorship, right? And you sort of made a comment that perhaps really structured programs. So it's like you will be mentored by you don't tend to work. So can you tell us a bit more about that? How can we foster a culture of mentorship without being prescriptive? Yeah. And this is personal opinion mode here. I don't like anything that points somebody that you have to be mentored by this person because I think you just diminish the whole point of it, which is, all right, so Dom, tell me your five-year plan. Tell me what's 10 years out from you. What do you need based on your IDP, based on your strengths, based on who you are? What do you really want to work towards? Well, some people have a trajectory that, you know, they're going to run the company, which, okay, we'll work through those. Some people have the desire, you know what, I'm in a role. I don't want to be the CEO. I don't want to be the, I want to be right where I'm at now and deep into the discipline that I have and the expectations I have and ownership that I've got. So help me build that. All right. Then we have people that want to move laterally. Or if you think of career pathing, you know, which way you want to go. Based on that, then we go find a person that's really got the competencies and skills and abilities to help develop those pieces and ask them, hey, we've got Dom who's ready to you know, take over this point at some point in his career from a competency level we're really needing these skills and ability is this a fit for you can you can you match that yes can't great there's the format on how the mentorship programs some of those the software i've seen beside this now they'll say they claim that this is where it can be done electronically i just call me an old school millennial but i um, i still appreciate the human side of this and not the machine side of this on how you can bridge these relationships to begin to say, we've got a great pair here, mm-hmm. pun intended here. It's not a swipe left or a swipe right on how we're going to match people on this. It's more intentional on where are you going? What do you need? And then who do I have internally that can help get us there just through the one-on-one mentorship? So it's quite a manual process. It's like, it sounds quite time intensive. Yes. Okay. And yeah. you support that. So you'll try and connect people. Absolutely. There's no formula of time that you should spend on developing your people, coaching your people and keeping them engaged. Because if you're a true people leader, you woke up today thinking, how am I going to engage my team? How am I going to coach and develop? Every project that comes in your door, how can I develop my people on this? Every conversation you go into, if they're engaged, they got to be engaged on the way out. doesn't matter the type of conversation with it, but that's the aim of what that is. So in terms of the manual process, yeah, and if, you, if you're in a big enterprise with 300,000 employees, if you're hearing me talk, you're probably thinking we don't have much mm-hmm. time for that. But every time I hear that, I think, then you don't have time for your employees. Well, how are you set up elsewhere? Because I could tell you, I mean, to take basic behavioral economics. How many have gone into a store or a location where you felt they didn't have time for their employees? Been there, yep. <laughs> yes. Therein lies the mm-hmm. difference of you do have time it, and it's a conscious effort. But if that's what you're really into and, and need to work, I would just say, you know, you don't look at the whole year. You look at it one week at a time. 
So let's imagine, I totally agree with you, right? And I think it is something that's probably neglected. Is that fair to say in a lot of organizations, even good functional organizations, people are like, okay, we've got our sales targets. We've got our products to ship. And I can sort of relate to this myself as a leader. It's like, okay, we've got all this stuff to do in some mythical point in the future when I'm not so busy, that's when I'll really focus on nurturing my people. And it's very easy to say that and then never do it. Right. So how can we make sure that it actually gets done and raise the profile of mentorship, of training, learning, and development in the eyes of leaders? Yeah. That's the topic sense. Treat your employees as your best asset. If you start to dial into people strategies, I mean, you see positions, oh, you got chief people officer, you chief talent officer, you've got all these roles that indicate you are the one that's involved with the people of the organization. So what are you then doing with it? And baked in within our strategy is we've got five pillars and it's from everything from consumer, our, our customers, our um, financial DEIB. We have one pillar dedicated to people. I'm going to plug ours because ours is the first pillar. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I'm going to pretend that it is. And the pillar that we have serves all verticals that we have in our organization. So when we start with something, if we're going to make a change, if we're going to update something, if we're going to change strategy, now over to the OD team to say, here's the big change that's coming. How do we ensure organizational development team? As soon as they're involved and we're involved with the change, we've got to advance the organization before we can advance individuals. Because how do we know we're healthy enough to take on this change or implement this strategy without checking in with people. And so you move it to the front of the line each and every time. The other part I would say is for so long, employee engagement, I think, had a bad rap, like it was a squishy term or, you know, it's too soft. And I don't understand that (laughs) because nobody wants to, nobody drives the work, I hope, and thinks like, I'm just not going to produce today. I don't have a desire to do, you know, maybe people have those everyday interactions that I'd say you're in the wrong job and you don't have your talents aligned with the role that you're in. But I mean, think of your first day employee who drives the work on their first day and says, this is going to be horrible. Why would I do this? You get them engaged, but where that breaks apart is the experience of your culture, your employee value proposition, your managers, all of that creates what that is. And if you use employee engagement as a competitive advantage to your workplace, you're in the right spot. Think of the places that you know you walk into and it just seems like a fun place to work or a place that you'd want to join. That's not by accident. There's tactical strategies behind that to say our frontline managers are the ones that serve our employees that meet the customer where they're at. We've got to keep them top of mind engaged. If I'm in a hierarchy position, I'm not in the front lines of that. I might do site visits, but my customer or my employees, and it just works backwards from there. The scholar of this, if you want to see the data related, is Danny Kahneman, just on all the things related to emotional versus versus reaction. We're emotional 70% of the time. We're rational 30% of the time. So what that tells us is that the more emotion that we can win hearts and minds of employees at their work and how they experience their work, I know that's going to have a downwind effect that, that hits our consumers. I think for a while, we had more of the economic way, not behavioral economic way of thing to say transaction equals dollars. True. 
organic growth is what you're after and your employees and how engaged they are, are what's going to make that soar. Yes. Now you mentioned it was really cool to hear this view of, well, no one obviously is driving to work on their first day expecting to have a bad time. Otherwise, why would they take the job, right? And so is it fair to say that's a golden opportunity when someone is onboarded to get it right? And how can we take advantage of that opportunity right from day one? Yeah, check this out. This is fun because this ties into what we were talking about before. So think of all the things. The first day is kind of like the, the ride, right? So let's say you're getting on Space Mountain. Have you rode Space Mountain, Bob? Uh, yes, when I was a kid. Yes, you should do it again. Go to the left side. I think it's a different experience. I like the left side of it. But if you're on the ride, and then it's there and over. But all the hype before you get into it, the line, the just the whole scenario, you're walking through it, like you're building up to just the ride. If the first day of work shows up for someone and you haven't built up to that, then you really haven't started onboarding to the first day. Mm. We think of ways to, okay, so you're going to get, you say yes to the position. And there's a way in which that we teach, how do you unsell a role, resell a role, and resell a role again? Right? So in that offer, there's a method to making a job offer that starts the engagement between the manager and the employee. And it's things like, give you an example. So if, if Dom, if you're accepting a role on the OD team, I'm going to call you and say, hey, we're at the end of our candidacy here. Let me just give you a couple day in the life examples. I want to hear what you have to say. And I'm going to unsell you the whole thing. Sorry, what do you mean by unsell? Oh, like almost negatively promote the role in the organization. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you the toughest days. I'm going to tell you the tough meetings, the days that we're, you know, it's four o'clock, but the bell hasn't rung yet. So we're going to keep going. I'm going to talk about weekend travel. I'm going to, all the things that I want to throw out on the table. And then I'll say, so, so tell me, how's your reaction to that? The most talented folks that want that role, they'll, they'll say, I love it. I can't wait. Like this doesn't, this is, sounds, you know, like an opportunity, not a challenge for me. Okay. I know I've got the right person that I'm about to make this offer to and say, just based on, now I'm going to, now I'm going to sell it to you again. Based on what you just said, here's why that gives me just great excitement to work with you. Because here's the projects in line. Now I've talked about I've talked about the work. Now I'm going to talk about the person. Here's also so I'm going to resell it to you. Now, Dom, based on what you've said so far in the projects we've had, you've now heard the the stories of things that go wrong. We cannot wait for you to get started here. Now I've just unsold you. I've resold you twice on what that is. And if you're still at a yes, it's no longer even a possibility of them saying like you, that you've got them so fired up for what that is. I didn't even start you on onboarding yet, but I did it as a sense of psych, you know, people talk about psychological safety. We're starting that safety then and bridging a network and relationship and engagement right from the start. Now, leading up to your first day, this is where I think great managers do the best work. How many touch points are you having with them? You got to think through the day in the life of them. They have to have a conversation with their family. They've got to put a two, three, four week notice in. If they've been with the company for, you know, five, 10 years, it's kind of a breakup. And so emotionally, they've got a lot going through. So for me, I'm in touch with you once a week. Or when I know you're about to put your two weeks in, three weeks, whatever it is, and I'll say, hey, if you want to chat today after you do this, totally get it. I'm not trying to influence anything, but I know what you're going through because I've been there myself. You're onboarding and you don't, you're not even in an onboarding program yet. How many companies would you say do that? Not enough. And the talented managers in the world that we have, 
if you ask them why they do it, they don't even know why they do it. Mm. But they just know from the people side of things, they need to do it because it's what should be done right. That's how I've started that. You know, the Friday before the Monday they start, hey, have a great weekend. Super pumped for you to be here on Monday morning. Let me know if anything comes up over the time period. Right? Did your family, spouse have any questions that you're worried about that you want to talk through? What's your con- like? You got them engaged before they started because of the efforts that you put into it. And if somebody said, well, I don't have time for that, again, I'd come back to, then you, why are you in the role as manager, first of all? And why do you have a team? Because you're telling me that your people aren't, empo- your people aren't your empo- most important asset, and they are. So take the 20 minutes that exchange of a communication for your newest employee coming on that's going to change everything that you're after in this role and ensure they know you care about them as a person to the point where you know, you've started one-on-ones with them even before they're on the books, just so they know they haven't made a bad decision, just so they know what to expect from you going forward. That's a fantastic approach. So we're starting onboarding well before they actually start their first day. In a sense, we're almost starting from the first point of contact they have with the organization in the recruitment process. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And you know what the 60% towering effect. So that you got you, the manager, doing everything right and keeping them engaged the whole way. You know, you've got things coming to them in the mail that's from the organization on, you were kind of reselling the whole process again. They get their they get their equipment with a welcome note. They get things that are just, you know, all of the the hype that leads up to what that first day could be. Okay. Thanks, Adam. So we started talking about learning and development tips today, and we had some great insights about not starting with training and presupposing the need for it about the importance of mentorship. And then we moved from learning and development, strictly speaking, into recruitment and onboarding and how that can result in a better employee experience that filters all the way through to customers. And I think it's super relevant for a company like Disney where that will come through in the customer experience that people have with their business in places like the parks. So I think we've got some fantastic tips there. Anything else that you wanted to share in terms of learning and development tips? And then in the next episode, we'll go into data-driven HR performance development. Yes. We know from March of 2020 till now, everyone's got the line about the workplace has changed. But that's usually where people hear, they stop talking about it. You have to know what changed, why it changed, and then what's your new reality of your workplace. And then you got to do two things. You got to embrace it. Or you got to let it go. So this big discussion now around, you know, I, every day I read something about, well, we're forcing people to come back. Nope, we're only going to come back once a quarter. We're completely going hybrid. It's just this wave of, to me, it's uncertainty. If I'm a, I'm fresh out of college, mm-hmm. I'm looking for a job. I'm like, what do I do? Like, who do I go with here? What do I pick? What path I go? Because there's such a wide range of of determination of what it is. And I think that the best thing we can do is acknowledge what our current workplace is in those two things. Embrace what it is to maximize the productivity and potential. Or just let, say this, like, this is no longer the case. Just let it go. And the, the let it go piece to it, I know, is usually the panicky part on how's it going to work. But you can do a rollout to letting piece. You don't have to do it all at once. You can stage gate what this looks like to say, hey, we're going to try it here first. We're going to try it here first. Mm-hmm. We're going to test it based on these metrics and what we can evaluate to say, was mm-hmm. that successful or not? And then we, if not, we turn the lights back on to what we need to do. But the the constant struggle, or what I would say, the human bias in us is that if your management style is managed by observation, 
I'd caution that because no talented employee right now wants to, to know like, hey, it's 8.03, where's, where's so-and-so? Well, they're stuck in traffic because of daycare. Or they, you know, it's, so they're going to be there at 8.07. Are you telling me that's mm-hmm. a deal breaker? And if it is, you miss the point of why you should be leading people. Right? You should have those conversations. It's the free thing to do, but it's not happening enough. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. So that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to Adam Hickman, Vice President of Organizational Development at Partners Federal Credit Union. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Adam and I are going to discuss data-driven HR and performance development. If you can't wait till our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Adam, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes or visit his company website, partnersfcu.org. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com. We have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your use cases for data, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always contact me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Dominic Bohan. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. Remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more. Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast, and I hear everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Dominic Bohan.